Let me invite you to take God's Word, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 as we continue our study through 1 Corinthians, as we've slowed down just a little bit, as we've come to one of the greatest chapters in all of God's Word, uh, Paul's chapter focusing on the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ and on our resurrection as well. Uh, while you're turning, let me put this plug in. Uh, beginning this Wednesday night, we're going to start a new study on Wednesday night. Uh, it's a mystery. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at several passages in the New Testament where writers refer to truths revealed in the gospel as a mystery that had been previously hidden. And we're going to look at the revealing of these gospel mysteries. And so I definitely want to encourage you to come out on Wednesday night as we study God's Word together, uh, in-depth study of God's Word. I remember one time we, uh, Shelly and, and uh, I think Brian and Jamie and, and, and I, we went to Kings Island maybe, rode a, a, uh, one of the water rides, and there's this big sign as you're getting ready to get on it. It says, you will get wet, but you may get drenched. And uh, that's the way I feel about our study coming up on Wednesday night. We're going to get wet as we dive into God's Word. Uh, but there's a good likelihood we may end up getting drenched in it as well. And I'm looking forward to it, excited about it. Um, so I encourage you to come. But we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And we're going to look beginning in verse number 20 and read down through verse 28. We're going to think about when things are the way they're supposed to be. Verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the first fruits. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to the God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all things under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But it, when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. This is the word of the Lord. Things are not the way they're supposed to be. This thought is one that for years has continuously run through my mind as I think about the world in which we live in. When a gunman enters Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida with an assault rifle and opens up and kills 17 people and you watch the interviews, you see the tears, you feel the pain, there is something in your heart that grips you and says... This is not the way things are supposed to be. When you watch a young man so enslaved to an addiction that he will lie, he will steal, he will do anything in his power just to get his hands on a pill. 
your heart breaks, but inside you, there's something that says, this is not the way it's supposed to be. When you see pictures of a child in a third world country who is just skin on bones, and you know that in a matter of days or weeks, that child will die from starvation or from hunger. You know that that is not the way things are supposed to be. When a person hates another person just because of the color of their skin, you know that's not the way things are supposed to be. When you watch a strong, robust man reduced to a rack of bones with skin after a year-long fight with cancer, and then he breathes his last and flatlines and the doctor calls the time of death, and you're standing in the hospital room with the family and you look around, you know that this is not the way things are supposed to be. When a loving wife and mother looks into the eyes of her children and her husband and she cannot even recall their names because a disease has taken her memory away from her, you know that's not the way things are supposed to be. And when you watch a family gather around a wooden casket and you watch them as they cry and they mourn and they grieve and they look in at their loved one for the final time in this world and you feel their pain, there is something inside of you that says this is not the way things are supposed to be. Yes, we live in a world that's characterized by murder, hate, starvation, Genocide, racism, disease, heartache, grief, sorrow, and ultimately, death. And as we live in that world, there are times we just stop. We look around and we think, is this it? Is this the way it's supposed to be? Scripture is clear. It's not. When you open up your Bible to the first few chapters, you find in the creation story, The original intent of God in creation. You want to know what God thinks? You want to know God's original intent? His original intent was a world characterized by love, by fellowship, by joy, by peace, by tranquility. But that intent was interrupted. God looked at all that he had made and his conclusion was it is very good. But the goodness was interrupted when sin entered into the world. And when Adam sinned and sin entered into the world, paradise was interrupted. When sin entered into the world, all of creation was turned wrong side up, for a better lack of a term. And things were no longer the way they were supposed to be. Instead of life, we have death. Instead of fellowship, We have separation from God. Instead of joy, we have guilt and sorrow. Instead of tranquility, we have chaos and we have pain. No, on this side of Eden, make no mistake. Things aren't the way they're supposed to be and they aren't the way God originally intended. So we ask this question. Is there hope? Is there really a brighter day coming in a world that's dominated by sin and sorrow, grief and death? Can we really be optimistic and say that a better day is coming? 
for the Christian and for those who believe God's word. We have hope of a brighter day coming. We have hope of a better future. We have hope that there will indeed be a day when things will be the way they're supposed to be. And we have this hope because of one event that took place 2,000 years ago. And that event was the day when God's only begotten Son was raised from the dead to life. And because of that day, we know that there is coming a day when things will eventually be the way they're supposed to be. But how? How is it that this one event in history changes our outlook for the future? How does the resurrection of Jesus Christ cause us to see brighter days coming? To ask another way, how does looking back at an empty tomb with confidence enable us to look forward to a brighter day with assurance. Well, that is exactly what the Apostle Paul describes for us in verses 20 through 28 in our text. He is going to show us the worldwide effect of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, what it means for us, what it means for the kingdom of God, the rule and the reign of Christ. And he wants us to make no mistake that by looking at the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we have hope. And we have hope of two things. The first he shows us is that we have hope because Christ's resurrection guarantees our resurrection. In verses 20 through 23, Paul wants us to know that we are going to experience a resurrection in the future because Jesus experienced a resurrection in the past. Now, in verses 12 through 19 in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul has just painted a sad picture for us. He's imagined a world in which the resurrection is not true. And to make a long story short, here's what he says to us. If the resurrection is not true, Jesus is lifeless, faith is useless, Preaching is pointless, religion is senseless, and the future is hopeless. That's what a world without the resurrection looks like. But again, your preacher's favorite word in the Bible, but. Verse 20 begins with my favorite word. After bringing us to the depths of despair with telling, painting a picture of a world with no resurrection, Paul begins verse 20 with the word, but. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. So from the brink of despair, he lifts us to the heights of hope with the fact of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. So in verses 20 through 23, consider, if you would, what Paul shows us in the reality of Christ's resurrection. He says, but in fact, it's not up for debate. It is a fact. In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. You see, Jesus Christ as a man died on a Roman cross, was buried, and three days later, he was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. Now, what makes his resurrection different? And Bible readers know that if you read Scripture, there are other people who were raised from the dead in Scripture. As a matter of fact, uh, throughout his earthly ministry, the Bible records three separate times that Jesus raised somebody from the dead. In Luke 7, Jesus stops the funeral procession 
touches a dead boy's bed that they're packing him to, the widow's son, and he comes back to life. So Luke 7, there's the widow of Nain's son. Mark 5, Jesus raises Jairus' daughter from the dead by just simply saying, damsel, arise, and she comes back to life. And then the, the resurrection of all resurrections in his ministry was in John 11, when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead after he had been dead four days, and he even stank. But what's different about Jesus' resurrection? Why aren't we celebrating their resurrection? Well, there's a difference. And the difference is, the widow named son, Jairus' daughter and Lazarus, they all three died again. Their resurrection was temporary at best. They all three died again. But Jesus, when he was raised from the dead, was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. And Paul says in Romans chapter 6, that in that he died, he died unto sin once for all. But in that he lives, he lives unto God. What does that mean? It means that when Jesus was resurrected to life, he was the only human in history thus far to be raised from the dead, never to die again. Raised with eternal life. And that is a reality. That is a fact. And so Paul says, but in fact, now in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. So from the reality of Christ's resurrection, Paul then describes the necessity of Christ's resurrection. Right? Why is it essential? Why is it essential that Christ be raised from the dead? Now, in order to answer this, Paul tells us this. Verse 21. For as by a man came death. Now, if you mark in your Bible, you ought to mark that, that little phrase. A man. By a man came death. By a man has to come also the resurrection of the dead. Now, here's what he's saying. We got in the shape we're in because of what a man did. By a man, death came. And in order for our race, in order for humanity to get out of the quagmire, to get out of the situation it's in, it's got to be led out by a man, by a figurehead, by a representative. And thus he says, by a man must come the resurrection from the dead. And then he clarifies what he means in verse 22. For as in Adam all die. So also in Christ shall all be made alive. You see, here's what he's saying. When Adam sinned in the Garden of Eden, when he sinned, Adam represented us because all of us were in his loins. All of us were in Adam. Thus, when he sinned, we sinned in him. And thus his actions were attributed to us. Therefore, his penalty was attributed to us as well. And you know what the penalty for Adam's transgression is? Death. And so death passed upon all, Paul will say in Romans chapter 5, because we are all born in Adam. All of humanity descends from Adam. Yet, yet, Paul makes a distinction between Adam or a comparison between Adam and Christ. And here's what that, that comparison is. That like as Adam was the figurehead over all of creation and thus his actions are attributed to those who follow after him. Jesus is called the second man Adam in verse 45, the last Adam, 
And thus, he comes forth as the figurehead of a new humanity. One of a new age. Not one of the old order. Not one of the old age that's marked with sin, sorrow, and death. But he comes forth as the figurehead of a new age that is marked by righteousness and holiness and, and, and eternal life. And thus, we are in Adam by nature. That's why everyone dies. But by faith, we are in the Lord Jesus Christ and part of a new humanity. So the most important question any of us have to ask today is this. Who am I in? Am I in Adam? Or am I in Christ? Because on the day of judgment, I'm going to receive what either Adam deserves or I'm going to receive what Jesus deserves. What does Adam deserve? Adam deserves judgment. He deserves separation. He deserves wrath. What does Jesus deserve? He deserves acceptance. He deserves peace. He deserves joy. He deserves, he deserves reward. And so all of us today are represented either by Adam or we are represented by Christ. You're being represented before God by one or the other. And your eternal destiny is dependent upon which one represents you. And thus, that is why it is necessary for a man to be raised from the dead to bring forth a new humanity made in righteousness and holiness, a new creation, if you will. But then... Paul mentions the certainty of our resurrection. Again, he says in verse 20, but in fact, Christ <clears throat> has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now look down in verse 23. Speaking of the resurrection, he says, but each in his own order, Christ the first fruits. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. The resurrection of Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago guarantees the resurrection of his people in the future. Now, Paul uh, twice uses the term, the first fruits, to refer to Christ's resurrection. And he's saying that Jesus' resurrection, Jesus was the first fruit of the resurrection. Now, this was a harvesting term that was often used to describe a harvest whenever it would come in. And the first fruits was the initial gathering of the harvest. They, they, they didn't harvest all of the field, but the first fruits was that initial gathering. They would gather up the initial fruit that would come in, and they would take it in, and it basically did three things. Uh, first, it marked the beginning of the harvest. When you gather in the harvest, or the first fruit, it meant that the harvest was coming. Second, it told you what to expect of the rest of the harvest. Based on what the first fruit was, you knew what to expect with the rest of the harvest. Any of you ever get excited about planting your garden? That, you know, first time the green beans come in, those white half runners, and you get you, your first mess, that's your first fruits. You go in, you fix them, you sit down to eat them, and they have no taste. Doesn't matter how much salt you put on them, doesn't matter. You could, you, you could throw a pound of bacon in there. It has no taste. What do you automatically think about the rest of the beans? They're not worth a nickel. I don't even want to pick them. Let them rot on the vine. But when you pick them and you sit down to eat them, and, oh, they just taste so good, that first mess does. I mean, you get, it, you get the fork near your, 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 your mouth and your tongue knocks your brains out. I mean, you are excited about it. 
What do you think about the rest out there in the field? Oh, it's going to be good because that first mess was good. Well, Jesus is the first fruit of the resurrection. And that's why Paul uses that analogy. But the term meant something else as well. The first fruits guaranteed that a larger harvest was coming. I mean, the first fruit was just a small portion of what the rest of the harvest was. Now, let's think about that and let's apply it to Jesus as being our first fruits of the resurrection. His resurrection, like the first fruits, marks the beginning of the end time resurrection harvest. All right? Now, don't lose me here. The end time resurrection is not just something that's going to take place in the future. It's something that's already begun in the past. It began 2,000 years ago. What's going to happen with the resurrection of God's people in the future? It's that men and women, humanity, is going to be raised from the dead never to die again. But that's not going to be the first time that happened. It happened 2,000 years ago when Jesus was raised from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus was an eschatological event. That is, it was an end time event that took place 2,000 years ago. We live in the gap between the first fruits and the final harvest. But we know, secondly, that because the first fruits occurred, the final harvest is also going to occur. In other words, because Jesus got up from the grave, we are guaranteed that we also will get up from the grave as well. But the first fruits does something else as well. It shows us, it lets us know what we're going to be like when we're resurrected from the dead. Jesus was not resurrected in some spiritual form. He was not resurrected in some angelic form. He was resurrected in a body. He ate fish with his disciples on the seashore. He says to Thomas, stick your finger in the wounds on my hand. Thrust your hand into my side. He could be felt. He could be touched. He could be heard. Because when he was resurrected from the dead, beloved, he was resurrected as a man. A man came forth out of the grave. And thus, when we are resurrected, although our body will be changed, our body will still be our body. We will have a body, a glorified human body. And, 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 and we will be like him. John puts it this way in 1 John chapter 3. Beloved, what manner of love the Father has shown us that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore, the world knows us not because it knew him not. And beloved, we don't know yet what we will be like. But we know this. We know that when he appears, we will be like him. For we will see him as he is. John says, listen, there's a whole lot of things about this resurrection and about what we're going to be like when we get there. I get questions all the time. Well, if I died 80, will I be 80 years old in the resurrection? You know, ladies ask me all the time, well, I have gray hair in the resurrection. <laughs> you know, guys, well, I look like Arnold Schwarzenegger in the resurrection maybe. I mean, what am I going to be like in the resurrection? And my answer is, I have no idea. But I do know this. The main, most important thing is, I'm going to be like him. You're going to be like him. 
Because we will see him as he is. Because he was the first fruits of the resurrection. And that means that when he came walking out of the tomb that day, he guaranteed a day in which a number that no man could number will follow in his footsteps. He was the forerunner for us who entered into heaven and guarantees that those who are his will follow in his footsteps. Beloved, his resurrection gives me hope because it guarantees my resurrection. As well, this week the world's watched and saw the news of Billy Graham passing this world into heaven. And my favorite, my favorite quote of Billy Graham was when he made the statement along the lines, one of these days you are going to read that Billy Graham is dead. Do not believe it. Don't believe it. I'm not dead. I'll be more alive then than I have ever been. But do you know, while he is rejoicing in the presence of God, his body was at the Capitol Rotunda. It's... In North Carolina, it's set to be buried. That's a body. But when it is placed in that mausoleum or it's placed in the grave, his body will remain there. But his body will get up. He will be resurrected because his Savior was resurrected as well. Beloved, that tells us that one of these days we have hope of things being the way they're supposed to be because his resurrection guarantees our resurrection. But his resurrection also guarantees restoration. In verse 24 through 28, he now turns from personal and he looks at the kingdom of God. What does the resurrection mean for the kingdom of God? Well, what he shows us is that those who belong to Christ are going to be resurrected. And at that moment, God is going to restore all things. He is going to make all things the way they are supposed to be. Let me ask you this. What's Jesus been doing since he ascended 2,000 years ago? And the answer is, he's reigning. He's ruling. He's seated at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning over the kingdom of God. But doesn't that create somewhat of a problem? And the problem is this. If he's ruling and reigning for 2,000 years, how is it that we still have sin and we still have sorrow and we still have death? Is it that Christ is a weak ruler? Is it that he does not have the power to overcome these things? How can there be a simultaneous sovereign ruling over all things and yet, yet, things here still not be the way they're supposed to be? How does that fit? Well, Paul's going to give us three snapshots. One or one deals with where we're at, and two snapshots deal with the future. And he's going to show us how through the resurrection of Jesus, he's going to right all things and make all things right and anew again. First, he begins with what I call a present conflict. Look here in verse 24. Then comes the end, that is, at the resurrection. When he delivers the kingdom to the Father, God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign. That's what he's doing now. He's reigning now. And he must reign. How long? Until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Now wait a minute. What's this all about? Jesus reigning. And he's got to reign until all enemies are placed under his feet. 
feet. Are you telling me that Christ's reign is a contested reign right now? That's exactly what I'm telling you. That's exactly what Scripture teaches. You know when Jesus came teaching the, king, the principles of the kingdom of God? You know why the Jews missed it? Because the Jews had read Daniel. They read about that stone, that kingdom that was hewn out of the mountain without hands that came and crushed all the other kingdoms of this world. No kingdom like it. So when Jesus came talking about the kingdom of God being at hand, they automatically thought about a kingdom that could not be, uh, could not be withstood, a kingdom that could not be resisted, a kingdom that could not be contested. And yet Jesus ends up telling them this. Here's what the kingdom of heaven's like. The kingdom of heaven's like a sower who goes forth sowing seed in, into soil. Some of it falls on bad soil. Some of it falls on grain uh, amongst weeds. Some of it falls amongst stony soil. Some of it falls on good soil and brings forth fruit. So the Jews are standing there doing the math. So the gospel, so the kingdom's going forward and this message of the kingdom can, it can be choked out by the things of this world. It can be, it can be uh, scorched by the, the trials and tribulations of life. Uh, there are some people who appear to be in the kingdom but immediately they're not in the kingdom anymore. They had no category for this. What do you mean? One and four return on the kingdom? Makes no sense. And then Jesus goes on and he says, in the kingdom of God's like this. It's like a farmer who sows his wheat and at midnight <coughs> the enemy comes and he sows tare amongst the wheat. And so side by side, you have wheat growing by tare and you can't tell the difference until the harvest. You mean that's the way the kingdom of God is? There's a there's, there's tension in the kingdom. The Jews did not get that, and so they missed that. And that is exactly what Paul is referencing here when he says he must reign until his enemies are made subject to him or his enemies have been put under his feet. Psalm 110 speaks of this, the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. David says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sent forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies, it says. You know that's exactly what Jesus is doing now. <coughs> he is ruling from heaven. And yet here on earth as his kingdom is growing, his kingdom is growing and being ruled by Christ in the midst of his enemies. Enemies, sin, sorrow, death, injustice, all of that is going on as the kingdom of God is moving forward and advancing. That is why there is a present conflict even though Christ has risen and Christ is reigning and ruling in heaven. That's where we're at. But we have another snapshot of a future conquest. Look what he says. In verse 25, he must reign until, until what? He's put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. The idea of putting something under his feet, uh, that comes from the Old Testament in, in, in Joshua. You remember as the children of Israel are advancing into Canaan and they're killing uh, the, the, the enemy and they're subduing the kingdoms. In Joshua 10, there are five kings Five Amorite kings who hear about the conquest and the moving forward of God's people. And they do what you would expect them to do. They go hide in a cave. And they go hide in a cave. And God's people bring them out of the cave. 
bring them before Joshua. And you know what he says? Go to now and put your foot on the neck of these kings. So what do they do? They do exactly that. They, they place their foot on the neck of the kings. It was symbolic of having conquered them, of having defeated them. And so here we have in 1 Corinthians 15 the same image. It's the same picture of Christ the conquering king who one day will have his foot on the throat of all the enemies of his people. All of the things of this world today that make things feel as if they're not the way they're supposed to be. He will one day conquer all of them. And he even tells us who the last one who's going to feel the, the foot of Jesus across his throat. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Now think of that. What an enemy. I'm talking about the enemy that struck down loved ones in their prime. The enemy that's taken children from parents. The enemy that has broken all of our family circles and left a void. The enemy that has caused pain and sorrow like none before. Death. But just as Joshua called for the Amorite kings to come forward and just as they placed their feet, his foot on the throat of those kings and defeated and killed them, there too is going to come a day when King Jesus will take death and he will place his foot on the throat of death and will forever annihilate and destroy death forever. When will it take place? It will take place when his people are raised from the dead. Paul will say in chapter 15, verse 54, when the perishable puts on the imperishable, talking about our body, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? On that day when God's people are called forward at the coming of Christ from their graves. In that day, death will receive its final blow of defeat. Because death will be shown to have lost all power over the people of God. And in Revelation chapter 20, Paul says that death and hell will deliver up the dead that are in them. And death and hell will be cast into the lake of fire that burns with fire and brimstone forever and ever and ever. There is coming a final conquest. Death may look as if it is raining now, but it is not. Beloved, it too will be defeated when Christ comes and we are resurrected. And then Paul shows us a final completion. What else is going to happen? Well, look what he says in verse 24. Then comes the end. When? At the resurrection. And what will happen? When he, that's Christ, delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put the enemy under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him. That God may be all in all. Now what is this? Here you find the restoration of all things. What, what did God do with Adam in Eden? He 
placed him in Eden, set him over the works of all of his hands to rule and reign and have dominion. And Adam squandered it. But now, at the end, you see the exact same thing with Christ. God places all things in subjection under his son, a man who rules and reigns. But something else is going to happen, it says. Now, follow the storyline here, chronologically. First, we have 2,000 years ago, the resurrection of Jesus. And between the resurrection of Jesus and the final harvest, we have the reign of Jesus. At the end of that, we have the coming of Jesus, which also means the resurrection of the saints of Jesus. At that moment, we have the annihilation of death and the defeat of death once for all. But verse 24 tells us something else is going to happen. That at that moment, when God's people are resurrected in power and glory, Jesus then would deliver the kingdom over to God the Father. The ultimate mission accomplished. What began in eternity past will end in eternity with a mission accomplished by the Son. In eternity past, the Father, God the Father, elected a people, chose a people, and gave them to His Son. His Son, in time and history, became a man in order to die for them, in order to redeem them to Himself. And that He did. And then as He sits and rules, the Spirit calls them out, quickens them, and draws them to Himself. And now, at the resurrection, that harvest will be raised to life, and then the Son will take those and present them to the Father as His love gift to the Father. And it says that even the Son will then be subjected to the one who subjected all things unto him. In this, we see the beauty and the glory of the Trinity, don't we? We find the Father and the Son, the Son who in perfect unity and essence with the Father is subjected to the Father in his role as Son. And yet we see that again in heaven in the future. And why is this the case? So that God, he says, may be all and in all. In that day, we then will know what the, writer of Isaiah, what the writer meant when he said this. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain shall be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. Have you ever stayed away from home for a while? Whenever I, I didn't stay all night with people much. Whenever I grew up, uh, uh, I'd, every once in a while. Well, about the longest I ever stayed away from home growing up was when I would go to ball camp. And I'll tell you, you play basketball from 7 o'clock till 8 o'clock. You get a meal squeeze in here and there at times, and you're in a dorm with a stinky bunch of boys. You, you, you get homesick bad. You miss mom's cooking. You miss your own bed. You miss not having to wear flip-flops to the chair so you wouldn't get athlete's foot. You, you miss all of those things about the comforts of home. There's very few things as, as, as joyous as being gone for a while and then coming back home. Do you know as we live in this sin-cursed world, 
we as God's people get homesick. We get homesick because this world is not our home. We're just passing through. We now, because of the Holy Spirit, are a people of a new age. And thus there's something in us that tells us things aren't the way they're supposed to be. Because we know there's going to be a day when things are the way they're supposed to be. What will it be like? What will it look like? And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. Prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. And he will dwell with them. And they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Beloved, we may live in a world where things aren't the way they're supposed to be. But we are headed to a land where things are going to be the way they're supposed to be. And we're assured of that because the journey's already begun. Our forerunner's already entered. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. And he did it 2,000 years ago through the resurrection from the dead. And so I ask you today, beloved... Do you have hope of the resurrection? Do you have hope that if you stand before God now, you will be accepted? The scripture says Christ is the first fruits of the resurrection. Afterwards, those who belong to him will be resurrected at his coming. Do you belong to Christ? You see, you are in Adam by nature. But you're in Christ by faith. Do you trust in Jesus and him alone for your salvation? Do you believe that he died and that he was raised again to life three days later? And have you placed your faith and your trust in him as your Lord and your Savior, trusting him and him alone for your salvation? If you have not done that, I encourage you to do that today, to get ready for the resurrection by placing your faith and your trust in Jesus and longing for a day when things will be the way they're supposed to be. Let's pray.